Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Chicago psychoanalyst Dr. Virginia Berry about the remarkable relationship between scent and memory. Dr. Berry, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. My pleasure. You're a practicing psychiatrist, a professor, and now an author, and your new book is called Scratch and Sniff Proust. I'd like to have you start just by kind of describing your book, which is just so creative. Sort of tell us the story of the idea behind the book and how you came to write it. Okay, I'm happy to do that. I um, I want to uh, amend your introduction to say I'm also a psychoanalyst, which is a little bit uh, different from just a psychiatrist in that um, uh, I, I'm sure you know something about psychoanalysis, but it is, you know, uh, an attempt to uh, have a depth understanding of those people. And it, that's relevant, I think, to how the whole scratch and sniff thing got started. I really, the idea for the scratch and sniff Proust uh, came while my husband and I were on vacation. Um, we were in Spain in 1988. We, we were both reading different books in our fields. He was reading Proust. Marcel Proust wrote a, a long, long novel called In Search of Lost Time. And at the same time, I was reading uh, a book that had just come out on neuroscience uh, called Neural Darwinism that was written by Gerald Edelman, who was a uh, Nobel laureate. Um, and so we were reading our, our various texts, and my husband uh, interrupted me to read the very famous passage from Proust, which has to do with something called involuntary memory. Involuntary memory was the, the term that Proust actually coined for this. And it's when an experience such a, as a smell or a taste unexpectedly unlocks a past rec recollection. And there's a very, very famous passage from Proust in which the narrator in Proust, who, whose name is Marcel, it's a, it's a very autobiographical novel, and Marcel Proust wrote it, and the narrator is na also named Marcel. In this passage, Marcel takes a bit of a Madeleine cookie, uh, the Madeleines are the kinds of cookies that they, you know, they sell them in Starbucks now. They come in a plastic wrap and they look like scalloped little seashells. Maybe you've seen them. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, anyway, he took a Madeleine and he dipped it in lime blossom tea. And what he what he wrote was that while looking at this, there was no particular memory that was called to mind. But when he took the uh, tea-soaked Madeleine and put it into his mouth, and he smelled it and tasted it. He was flooded by intense uh, uh, emotional and visceral sensations that he couldn't place initially. But very quickly, he began to have uh, memories from his childhood of the, the house on the street, the room in which he had, his aunt had served him tea, the gardens around the room, the uh, the house in, in which the, the the town in which the house existed, all these memories came back completely unbidden and evoked by the the smell and the taste of the madeleine dipped in tea. 
And that was what he called an involuntary memory. So my husband read that to me, and I was thinking about all things neurological and how the brain develops and how neurons are wired together and that sort of thing. And somehow or other, we came up with the idea of scratch and sniff proofs, <laughs> in which we would allow people to smell some of the scents that were important to Proust, because the novel is just filled with all sorts of perfumes and aromas and scents. So allow them to experience some of those scents, and then at the same time, learn why Smell and taste is so emotionally evocative, more so than other senses. So that's how the the book got started. You know, that was a long time ago, and um, the idea lapsed. And during those 10 years or 15 years, I've been teaching at the Institute for Psychoanalysis in Chicago, where I teach a class on mind and brain, which is meant to help people teach the candidates how the, about the brain and about brain organization that is relevant to doing psychoanalysis. And so I've kind of been marinating this idea for all these years, and finally it's come to fruition. That's great. And it, it truly is scratch and sniff. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, is a, it is a real scratch and sniff book. <laughs> right. That's not, just, that's not just a little joke. It really is. So, yeah. so you mentioned... Our, our sense of smell is is such a primitive, powerful sense, and it sometimes seems to interact more with our emotions than our intellect, which you alluded to. Is this scientifically true? Because I feel that a lot of people will relate to that in their own experience. Indeed, it is scientifically true. It seems that it, when you look at the neural connections, um, you know how things come in from the, the senses, and they get they make this long trip up to the brain. So by the time that things get to the visual association areas and the auditory association areas, they've made lots of stops on the way, and 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 there's been a lot of processing of of the material. And this is different from smell. From smell, there's a much more direct linkage between the the nose and the brain. Doesn't make as many stops, and it goes right to the emotional centers of the brain, where so that smell is processed emotionally right away. And there aren't as many connections that go to, say, the language processing areas mm-hmm. of the brain. I think one of the things that's really interesting about smell is the language that we have for smell. If you if you know if you take a moment and just try to try to describe something like the smell of a cigarette, what words would come to mind? That's really tough. I think words that come to my mind are people that that I associate with that smell. Oh, people who who you associate with smoking. Well, that you know that's interesting. So, but so because it's very hard, you might say it smells smoky. <laughs> what happened? What, what, you know, what happens with, with smell is that things are described in terms of what they smell like. Mm-hmm. Yep. So your association was with, with an association to the people who smoke. Similar, it's it, because there aren't as many words to describe smell. There, we don't have nearly the same vocabulary for smell that we have for vision or hearing. Mm-hmm. And again, it's because, and I, it's because the smell is um, processed in the lower reaches, reaches of the brain, 
and not so much goes to the higher language centers so that we don't have the language for it. Which brings me to another interesting phenomenon, I think. You know, if if you um if you, you if you tried to imagine, say you should try to think of that person who was smoking a cigarette when you had that association, you probably can call up in your mind's eye a visual image of that person. So we can usually call up, use that phrase, a visual image of somebody or, or even um, a sound image. We can remember in our heads a, a song. But it's it's really hard to call up a smell without being in the presence of a stimulus. Mm-hmm. Do you try to remember the smell of baked bread? You can probably remember all sorts of things about that smell, like, oh my gosh, it was, makes me feel all warm and cozy and um, like I'm back home with mom and so forth and so on. But it's very hard to actually call up that smell and smell it now. That's so interesting. And I was going to ask you about the relationship between memory and smell. That relationship is often described as very strong. Smelling something can call up memories in a very powerful way. But like you said, it doesn't go the other direction. You can't necessarily go from memory to smell. Why is that? That's right. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that smell is really uh, sort of a unique sense. Um, uh, you, you know, I want to just back up for a second to say that you, you said earlier that smell is a really old, evolutionarily old um, uh, sense. And so some people say it's a primitive sense. But there are people who argue that because it's so old, it's sort of the, the sense that is least primitive because hmm. it's been worked on for so many years. It has this great discriminatory power. You know, we can smell, we can make so many distinctions in our sense of smell. Why is smell so powerful? Well, so, so the first reason would be because of the direct linkage between the, the nose and the emotion centers of the brain. Maybe maybe I can um, make a little bit of a segue to talk about emotion because I think that there are a number of things that we need to understand and to think about if we want to understand the power of smell and why it why it that why the kind of memory that you have with the smell is one that you feel with your whole body it takes over it's not a it's not a pale abstract memory it's a very powerful visceral memory mm-hmm. so that that's what we want to try to understand so i want to talk a moment about emotion emotion already in the word of e- emotion you have motion you have action and the emotions that we are born with and uh, that, that we come into the world with are dispositions for acting and feeling. Emotions are given to us over evolution with the idea that they will tell us what to do. They'll uh, they'll help us figure out what to do next in in our lives. In in the service of survival, the emotions will will help direct us. So we come into this world with uh, a number of emotions that are already wired in our brains. It turns out that across evolution, across the animal species, if you go 
that, you know, down to, through chimps to dogs to rats, the same pathways operate that operate in human beings. Mm-hmm. And so we, we all have these innate, hardwired, dispositional responses that we come into the world with. Some of these emotion systems include things like fear. When, when, when that gets stimulated, our, you know, hearts start pounding, our uh, mouths get dry, our eyes dilate, so we're ready, you know, we're ready to take on emergency. And, and it also affects our thinking. When we're under the influence of the fear system, we start thinking with less discrimination. We are much more ready to act and act on something rather than uh, think about it. That's why, for example, if you're walking down the road and you see lying in your path a a stick that looks like a snake, mm-hmm. yep. you're much better off backing up and moving away without closely examining it in order to protect yourself on the on the chance that it might be a snake. Later on, you can calm down and see that, oh, there are little little leaves off of that branch and mm-hmm. it's not a snake. But your first reaction out of fear is to back off and uh, and act as if it were a snake. And so you, you don't have that discriminating power when you are, uh, when the fear system is operating. The point is that when we come into this world, smells can get hooked up with any of these emotion systems. If you want to spend... Um just a minute talking about maybe the the neurobiology and the anatomy of the sense of smell and the and the emotional center of the brain that could be really helpful so so the emotion these the, these kinds of emotion systems that I'm talking about are below the the cortex meaning they are much more automa- automatic much more primitive emotion systems and let me take an example of why do so many people love the smell of cut grass mm-hmm. of newly mowed grass is that a smell you like it is it's a smell that so many people um really really love and you know in thinking about that well so why? Why is that? You know, what is there something? What, what is is there something inherently wonderful about the smell <laughs> of cut, cut grass or, or what? You know, and um, I think that the answer lies in um, one of these emotion systems. One of the surprising emotion systems that we like we come into uh, the world with is the play system, mm-hmm. yeah. and that system is is that the play system. Um, it, when it, it's organized and, and op- activated, uh, you have rough and tumble play. We've seen that, you know, you've seen that with little kids. You've seen that with dogs. You know how they will, you know, sort of get down on their their four legs and put their butts up in the air and they indicate they're ready to play. Mm-hmm. That's the play system that's getting getting ready. And there are all sorts of reasons for its existence. But as children, we do we spend a lot of time with that rough and tumble play. And don't you think a lot of that is outdoors? It's a wonderful time. It's when you're out playing in this in the grass, maybe the grass has just been mowed, there's that wonderful nostalgia that's associated with fresh cut grass. So I think it's these these the emotion system and the olfaction linking up in at a particular time in life to bring that brings back these nostalgic Memories. Now, of course, 
if for some reason you were bullied in the backyard and, uh, you know, that the, then the, the smell of cut grass might take on a very negative meaning for you because it, because the associations are bad. But for most people, that smell is a very positive one. I think it's because of the memories of childhood. You know, earlier you'd mentioned that a lot of these connections are kind of involuntary. I'd like to talk about the difference between voluntary memory. This is another reason why I love that you identified Proust as someone to to refer to consistently throughout your book. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a passage from one of his letters that you included. So he says, voluntary memory, the memory of the intellect and the eyes, gives us only imprecise facsimiles of the past that no more resemble it than pictures by bad painters resemble the spring. So we don't believe that life is beautiful because we don't recall it, but if we catch a whiff of a long-forgotten scent, we are suddenly intoxicated. And similarly, we no longer love the dead because we don't remember them. But if by chance we come across an old glove, we burst into tears. And so I think that captures something just so important about the human brain. And I wonder if we can just talk a little bit about the relationship between the conscious brain and memory and what kind of voluntary access we have to our memories. And that is such a beautiful passage. I think I love that passage. Yeah, I think, you know, I, uh, we can talk about memory, there, there being two um, large uh, types of memories. You have explicit memory and we have implicit memory. So explicit memory is how we, I think, what we usually think about as memory, personal autobiographical memories. I remember when I went to the high school prom. I remember when I graduated from medical school. I remember, you know, these very um, specific events. It also uh, includes um, uh, memories of sex, you know, like, um, um, uh, let's see, I, Paris is the capital of France. Mm -hmm. Those are uh, facts like that are part of explicit memory that are conscious memories. And with explicit memories, you are aware that you are remembering something. There is an there's an active eye there that that knows I am remembering my days in high school. I am remembering these facts for school. Um, I'm remembering that I'm speaking with Samantha on the radio, and uh, I know that that's happening. So there's a conscious awareness that has that is associated with explicit memory. Now the other kind of memory is called implicit memory, and with implicit memory, there is no uh, subjective sense of remembering a memory that is in the in the experience, the implicit memory falls into just lots of different types. But the ones that people can really relate to is something like riding a bicycle. When you learn, you learn to ride a bike when you're little, little, and that's a laborious process where you really have to practice a great deal in order to maintain your balance and to figure out how to, how to, you know, sort of push the pedals around and how to steer. And you, you really have to concentrate on it initially, but. But gradually that becomes completely automatic and unconscious. And probably if you start to think about it too much, once later on in life, you will fall over. <laughs> Some people say explicit memory plans the future. Implicit memory anticipates the future. 
no, I, I, I struggled with trying to understand what that meant for a long time. And what it, here's how I understand it now. Okay, yeah. You know, explicit, mem- explicit memory means that you can think about something and, and, and make a plan about it. You can decide you're going to go to the grocery store. You can uh, think up a list of the things that you need to do. You can figure out which aisles you're going to go down first. And you can plan all this with a, based on explicit memory. But with implicit memory, what happens is, is that you have this sort of these memories sitting within you. And if there's a, some sort of a, a stimulus on the outside, the system is ready to respond. So when you start to walk over to your bike and you throw your leg over that center bar and start to bicycle, you know how to do it. It's, it's in you. It's not something that you are consciously trying to remember. It's an automatic process. Playing the piano is another example of that. You know, it's a laborious thing to learn. But once you do, you're no longer uh, thinking about where to place your fingers. The, the, the note before instructs where your finger where to go next. Right, right. Um, there, there, there's something related to this. I think it's important. It's, something, it's, a, it's a phenomenon called priming. Okay. And um, what, what priming means... Uh, and it's it's part of implicit memory. What priming means is that it's like priming the pump. You know, when you prime the water, the, the the pump of the well, you know, you pump that handle up and down a few times, and it's getting the pump ready to um, siphon the water up. It's called priming the pump. So the priming is like that in, in that it's getting a system ready to respond. If you um, If you read a list of words, and then are given a list of, um, a little bit later, are given a list of words with some um, letters left out of the words, mm-hmm. you will be able to fill in the letters of the words that you had actually seen earlier much better than filling in the letters of words that you haven't seen. And that is a considered, that is priming. That is that you were ready to see a particular word because you had seen it before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so with smell memory, it's it's like that. It's that the smell evokes completely involuntarily and unconsciously a whole slew of memories that weren't accessible by just thinking about it. And that was what that was really what Proust was so brilliant in describing. I think that you you also drew a connection. I believe with implicit memory. So you also do a lot of work um, with dreams and you see some parallels between smell and dreams when it comes to memory. Can you talk about that for a minute? I love it. But talking about dreams is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> I am a psychoanalyst. I, I love talking about how, how dreams operate to, you know, to integrate all these things in an unconscious way. I'm, I'm, uh, it, the, the challenge is to put a whole lot of uh, information into a very brief interview. But, you know, um, dreams, dreams have, have, have a purpose. And uh, one, of the, one of the purposes is to organize your experience and to actually take the experiences of the day and, and make sense of them and to integrate them, process them, put them into the right places in your, in your brain and, and store like experiences with like experiences and that sort of thing. I, I, think, I think that dreams are, are important when we're talking about the unconscious. 
you have any asked me about that directly, and that perhaps is even um, is, is is also relevant to to understanding the power of smell because we're talking about the difference between um, a, a conscious experience and what happens in the unconscious. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, I'm a psychoanalyst, and we are very interested in how the unconscious influences people. Psychoanalytic treatment is based on the idea that we are frequently motivated to act on impulses that we don't really recognize because they originate in our unconscious minds. And um, and it is that often that these unconscious feelings, such that these unconscious conflicts can create all sorts of negative emotions that affect us, but we don't understand why. So uh, an analyst is very interested in, in looking at the, the difference between conscious experience and unconscious and trying to um, uh, understand those, those unconscious meanings that, uh, that people bring to their lives. What Freud, what Sigmund Freud was talking about was when he talked about an unconscious world was a dynamic unconscious with this active unconscious life that influences our conscious experience. In consciousness, we can only have one thought at a time. You know, we can, you know, we might, we might flip flop and, and sort of go all over the place with different thoughts, but we only have one thought at a time in our conscious experience. Have you ever seen the figure ground um, diagrams of like the face and the vase? Have you ever seen those? Yes, they, they go from one to the other, but you can't see them yeah, both at once, from, right? Exactly right. You can't see them both at once because only one is available to consciousness at a time. But uh, but in the unconscious, there you have access to both. You just don't have the conscious experience of them. A lot happens in, un, uh, in the unconscious that you are not uh, aware of because hmm. it's unconscious. Yeah. There's both, uh, okay, so, I mean, another example of that is, I think, uh, you know, driving down the street when we are um, driving along and having our daydreams and we're not really thinking about where we're going or anything like that. It, it's sometimes a little bit uh, shocking to think how, how it, just to imagine that we are so little tuned in to what we're doing on the street. But I think that you can rely on your unconscious processing, that you are processing it. It's just not conscious. And it's only when something, you know, a car brake lights go on in front of you that you suddenly become conscious of what you're doing. But all along you're doing quite well, even though it's not a conscious process. Okay, so there's a difference between consciousness and unconsciousness. And unconsciousness has multiple parallel processing so that um, lots of things are being processed at the same time. The link, I suppose, to dreaming is that uh, that dreams are also taking various experiences and linking them in a way to understand your day's experience in terms of your past experiences would be the best one of the, one way of thinking about dreams. How does smell relate to dreaming? When we don't we don't smell in dreams. I don't know if you think of your dreams. You you're probably aware that you don't smell in dreams, um, and that's that's also related, I'm sure, to this this idea that that smell is unique and that it's not processed in the same way as other 
sensations. Mm-hmm. Parenthetically, in, in my experience, uh, I've, I've had one uh, psychotic patient who did have smell hallucinations so that the smell was, was triggered inside her brain somehow. And so this was one time where, you know, the, the smell was triggered from inside rather than outside. But that seems to happen only in pathological situations. I kind of on that topic, there is evidence that a diminishing sense of smell indicates declining health. But I wonder, are people working on the reverse? Do you think that scent could ever have therapeutic potential? And I also want to ask you if you ever use these ideas in your own work somehow. In terms of um, with aging, you have a, a declining ability to smell, and I'm, I, it's my understanding that one of the um, uh, early indicators of Alzheimer's uh, disease is, uh, is a, uh, an alteration in the ability to smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that I use directly the ideas of smell, but what I really use a lot in my psychoanalysis is the idea of an implicit memory and the idea that like smell, certain memories are not encoded in language so that the only way that we can have access to them is when they get played out in the course of the treatment. One of the things that happens in in working very closely with, with a patient, and psychoanalysts typically see uh, a patient four or five times a week mm-hmm. for a 45-minute session every day. That can be a very intimate, very intense experience. And what happens eventually, not, it doesn't take too long, is that the things that go wrong in people's lives start to go wrong in the consulting room. Mm-hmm. But often there are things that they have they have no words for. It might be things like if you get too close to somebody emotionally, it's dangerous. It's really dangerous mm-hmm. because as as children, for example, they were rejected if they were too needy. There is a an implicit memory that intimacy is dangerous. Well, in the course of a psychoanalytic treatment, as as the as the dependence and intimacy increases, that person may become much more afraid, but not understanding it and not recognizing the strategies that she uses in order to deal with that fear. But it is in that, because, because like smell, those experiences aren't accessible to consciousness. Well, thank you. I think we've gone over so many interesting things. Um, is there any last thing you want to say before we end? Otherwise, I'll close it out. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. There's so this is such a rich area. This uh, there's so much research that still needs to be done on on the sense of smell and why it's so powerful uh, in all these areas. And you know, the future is wide open for all of this. Once again, that was Dr. Virginia Berry, and her upcoming book is called Scratch and Sniff Proust. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.